A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Here he goes. Classic Seagal run. Sprinting okay, through. Throws him to the ground. An Akita throw, no doubt. Who sent you? Nobody. 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 No, no. You did this for fun. Oh, he's begging for his life. Huh? Oh, pointing the finger in his face. Seagal takes it. Hmm. If I find out you're lying, we'll come back and kill you in your own kitchen. Salvano! Bautista Salvano! Bautista Salvano. Bautista Salvano. Shouldn't have said that, my man. Yeah, man, I know him. Knee in the face. Hey, why you fuck with my friend, man? Hey, man, I'm not in the mood. Hey, fuck your mood, man. Oh, there it goes. Shouldn't have said that either. Don't push the goal. Boom. Big Aikido punch to the chest. He's down. (laughs) From the white writers of Negro Dialogue School of Film. Hey, what it is, blood? That, like, every action movie has that where it's always like, Hey, man, you messed his ass up. Shit. <laughs> you a bad white boy, Steven Seagal. Okay, Mr. Lawman Bruce Lee. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> you a bad white Italian slash Jew slash Asian slash uh, soul guitar player slash... Ukrainian, Russian, Mongol, Mongolian, <laughs> whatever you are this week, motherfucker, you bad. Whatever. Hey, I'm a bad mama jamma. I'm Steven Seagal, a keto champion, mm, street fighter. Welcome back to Fraudsters. I'm Cena Gazzaby at Cena Now on all social media at Fraudsters LPN. If you want to reach out to us, say hello, tell us your favorite scene from Steven Seagal. Justin Williams is here with us at Justin underscore Williams underscore comedy on Instagram. You can find him on Facebook. Send him an email. He'll come to your house. Oh my God, Justin, Steven Seagal, we made it. We made it, baby. Yes, I'm very happy. This is I've been wanting to do this episode for my entire life, and now Justin, we're you here. brought this up a year ago to us, <laughs> and I was like, "That's I don't wow, I didn't even think about it." In and this is part of our race hustler series now because Steven Seagal is a race hustler. Oh yeah, we're gonna see. This guy has appropriated so many different identities <laughs> throughout his career. 
It's it's insane. <laughs> if you don't remember, that was a clip from Above the Law. And uh, our producer, Hazel, asked us if we had seen the movie. And I started laughing uh, because it was merely not a question of have I seen it, but how many times did I fill my childhood watching Above the Law and March yeah. for Death? I mean, it was the thing that my dad and I used to watch together. That was like a bonding thing. You know, he he was always a big Charles Bronson guy because in Iran, Charles Bronson was big. But like when in America, I was like, Dad, Steven Seagal, Jean-Claude Van Damme. We watched all those movies. And he was like an Italian detective in it. He was a real tough guy. He always fought for honor. I mean, what was your feeling about Seagal when you were a kid? Seagal, I, I like you, you know, uh, grew up on a, a wide range of films that celebrated toxic masculinity. And I will say that the, what Seagal really brought to the table was elements of realism to his yes. violence. And also the very interesting trope of breaking the arms of different ethnic minorities in each film. That was always the thing where it was just like, you know, I'm going to break Jamaican arms in this film. <laughs> right, the, br- the breaking br- at the elbow. There was always a hyperextended, like, break where he, he, like, leverages at the, like, the fulcrum is the elbow. He breaks it, and yeah. the, the guy's like, ah! Or, or the guy's like, or the Jamaican's like, why? Uh? <laughs> this, I this, see. <laughs> the Asian guy's like, oh, there's every trope of like, <laughs> oh man. <laughs> oh my God. Steven Seagal, I mean, so I also used to have this debate, and I want to ask you this question as well. Uh, friends and I would always say, like, Jean-Claude Van Damme versus Steven Seagal. Who wins? I'll tell you what. I always took Van Damme because of the kicks. Who would you take? Uh, knowing what I know now or knowing no, what No, not I now. Back then. then. Back then, though. Back then. Back then, I probably would have actually probably taken someone like Seagal because Seagal uh, is actually physically a, a pretty big, big yeah, guy. Yeah, that's true. And my thinking on based on what he presented in those films is that his fight style was more practical. Like, you're not going to be able to, like, spin kick a guy in the head in a real fight. And, like, Van Damme very much relies on jump spin kicking a guy in the head or, like, doing the splits. You know, it's like these are things you're not going to be able to do in a real fight. Uh, So that's why I kind of, like, would have gravitated Seagal then. Now my answer would be a little bit different, and we'll get into the details. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also think, like, when you said, like, uh, he was, like, a bigger guy. Now, knowing what I know now a little bit, too, the fact that he wore all black in almost every movie all the time, except a couple times where he wore, like, a tank. He was not cut. He was, like, a thick guy. He was just, like, a little chunky. He was not ripped. Van Damme was shredded. He was shredded. Yeah. That's what I'm just saying. Van Damme. Yeah, that's what added to like Seagal's realism though. You know what I mean? Because he just looks Yeah, Everything. he was he looks strong in a way that was realistic. Like he didn't look um, you know, the professional wrestling Rocky Rambo steroid era. Yeah, he's strong. just a knock around Italian detective from Diker Heights, Brooklyn, you know? <laughs> it's also an Aikido master. <laughs> So here's how in Above the Law, his character is Nico Toscani, and this is how he actually describes himself. I was born in Palermo, Sicily. Came to this country when I was seven. We immigrated to Chicago. Oh, pobrecito. We were always raised to be very patriotic, to love our oh. country, and we did. Yes. When I was a little boy, my father took me to a baseball game. 
They had a martial arts demonstration out there, and I saw this little old Japanese man doing things that I thought were magical. And uh, in a baseball game, developed a crazy dream to go to the Far East. <laughs> By the time I was 17, I was there studying with the masters. Oh my God! In 1969, I was invited by a friend of mine to an American embassy party in Tokyo. While I was there, I met some crazy drunk guy named Nelson Fox. He recruited me into the CIA. I was 22 at the time. My eyes were about to be opened. <laughs> I went to a Cubs game, and Ernie Banks <laughs> hit a home run. But then also, a Japanese man dismantled several attackers. <laughs> As for the during the seventh inning stretch, <laughs> like what? And now, Cubs fans, a small Japanese man <laughs> will be. <laughs> woo, woo, woo! Break some boards! Break some boards! It's like any Steven Seagal thing, and you guys gotta find out. Just stop and think about what he's saying for half a yeah. second, and it becomes like hilarious. So that was how he presented his character, Nico Toscani, in Above the Law, but is also how he was branding himself at the time, as you'll hear on this next clip, where Seagal is promoting Above the Law on the Arsenio Hall show. Sometimes when I when I try to talk to you about your past, you're a little more conservative. You never want to talk about the past that much and and i've heard rumors and stuff like that so let, let me ask you this question very delicately and above the law we know what happened do you have any old friends that maybe get upset about you telling these stories and oh, yeah. really yeah. i was telling royce you know <clears throat> dandy davis and i never ever i swear to god thought that picture would make it to the theaters up until the night that was released we thought it's going to get pulled because it's it's based in truth and you know i got a lot of a lot of flack and i was a little bit worried about a lot of things in fact i was pretty worried for a while and a, a very dear friend of mine who's a four-star general and a, and a very big guy you know big guy you know at one point he said to me he says hey man what the hell he says it's entertaining tall, you know? very tall. when he said that i knew i was all right you know at the same time it's kind of dangerous that i mean what he's saying are we almost out of time yeah Please, God. Oh, please. Tell me we're almost out of time. I can't. Can we please get out of here? Please. Woo, 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 woo. Colin Powell called me and said, well, it's only a movie, so you're cleared, soldier. <laughs> so absurd. Very good dear friend of mine. <laughs> he was in Vietnam. He was in World War II. He was actually, he was actually in the War of 1812. He, he called me up and he said everything was going to be okay. <laughs> Everyone bought into this, though, Justin. That's what's crazy. This is uh, from an L.A. Times profile on this. This is also like the remember, people, this is like the 90s. There's no Internet, really, for people to like fact check anything. All right. So everyone's just believing everything. Everything is truth, especially when it comes from the guy you just saw in an action movie, hyperextended dude's elbow. So this is from an L.A. Times profile about Seagal. For 15 years until he returned to the United States in 1984, Steven Seagal lived in Japan, spoke the language, studied the martial arts, and became a master of Aikido. Not only did he have a rare inside look at the Japanese martial arts establishment, but he penetrated it as few outsiders had ever done. He was a disciple of Aikido's headmaster, he said, and also became a Shinto priest and the first Westerner to own and operate his own dojo or school in Japan. 
There are great martial artists in this town, he said angrily, and there are imposters in this town. The imposters are the majority. They call themselves masters and have bogus credentials. God knows where they came from or where they studied. When I ask them who their teacher was, they make up some name I've never heard of. To Seagal, 35, this is the only true path to perfection in the martial arts. And most Americans, he says, don't have the mentality or temperament for it. But not many Americans know at age five, as Seagal did, that they want to become martial arts experts. Nor do they begin studying martial arts at seven. Seagal's vision was clear. In high school in Fullerton, he played very little football and baseball, even though he was 6'4", preferring to practice the solitary disciple... <laughs> preferring... Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. But a guy that's 6'4", this article assumes that every 6'4 player should be fucking a football or baseball player. It's yeah. the worst thing ever. It's like, and it's, yeah, it's weird to just to like be like, even though he's 6'4", he didn't play football or baseball or, you know, basketball. <laughs> like, it's like the tall people that, of course, they play football and baseball. Yeah. You want to be 6'4 with a huge strike zone in Steven baseball. Steven Seagal did, chose not to use his height for chess, but to use it for the solitary discipline of martial arts. All right. So it gets a little crazier here. <clears throat> To learn the martial arts in Japan, Seagal had to first understand the Japanese mind. Oh, Jesus Christ. How high was this writer when they wrote this? He wasn't always successful when he decided to study the sword. He went to a sword master living in a monastery. This is definitely Kill Bill. Is this Kill Bill? <laughs> the yeah, sword yeah. master. I love the themes. It's what we call now Orientalism. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where it's just like you really like fetishize and like mythologize like Eastern cultures, right? It's oh. like when he decided to study the sword, he went to a master who lived in a monastery. It's like this is like Japan in like post World War II. The guy lived in apartment seventy <laughs> yeah, yeah. in Tokyo. <laughs> okay, so get this: the sword master wouldn't even meet with him. Seagal says he visited the monastery every day for six months until he finally saw the sword master in a garden and was able to ask him to teach him. The swordmaster said no. Finally, after a year of me being... <laughs> it's so stupid. He says, quote, Finally, after a year of me being turned down, he told me, We don't have any space here for students, but if you'd like to come into the monastery as a dog, we have space. Seagal said, Now I'm thinking, does that mean I have to get down on all fours and crawl in here? It was like a Zen riddle. A test. If I fail, I'm out. So I bowed real low and sort of crept in. <laughs> and then the... the uh, <laughs> it was like montage of him getting really good at swordplay all of a sudden. Well, this is a movie script. This is not a journalistic article. you got to be kidding me. Yeah, it's actually the plot of the uh, old uh, kung fu film uh, Thirty Six Chambers, yeah. where uh, they actually refuse to let uh, Sante's character into the Shaolin Temple. So uh, they actually make him like do the roof and like pitch the water. But in watching, in doing those tasks and watching the monks train, he actually becomes a monk because he fixes the roof with the hand movements. 
And then he does all the things. It's like it's totally just a ripoff of that. And then like the Karate Kid wax with on, wax, wax on, off. wax off. Yeah. We'll, we'll like update that. Yeah, it's totally the same. Okay, so that. then like there's all these other articles too about him. A martial arts magazine called him a quote streetwise Detroit kid, which we'll find out later is not true. And then there's another L.A. Times article that really, I mean, the the, the L.A. Times, God bless them, they they really loved Steven Seagal. They loved him. In a 1988 profile, they tied him to the CIA because that's sexy here in L.A. Quoted Seagal saying, You could say that I lived in Asia for a long time, and in Japan I became close to several CIA agents. I became an advisor to several CIA agents in the field, and through my friends in the CIA met many powerful people and did special works and special favors. The article goes on to say, Seagal spoke freely about his involvement in security operations for the Shah of Iran when he was deposed in 1979. Now, by the way, very happy Hazel found this because when I found and saw this, that she sent it to me, I fucking went right through the roof. Uh, he, so he, he spoke freely about his involvement in security operations for the Shah of Iran when he was deposed in 1979. He said, quote, we helped set up safe houses in London and Paris so the Shah and his family could flee the country. We also were aiding members of the Shah's family who were under threat of death from Kakahili Ayatollah Khomeini's killing judge. It was incredibly barbaric. They were randomly executing people. It was like something out of the Hitler era. One of the Shah's nephews wouldn't leave, so we had to hit him over the head and try to take him out unconscious. What is this? What? what? <laughs> so dumb. So dumb. <laughs> it's like it's like when they had to knock Mr. T out in the A team just so that he would fly and he'd be like oh, Murdoch, what are you doing? I'll trust you, Murdoch. Tell you I won't be on no plane, you fool. <laughs> I love it when a plan comes together. <laughs> but he insisted on going free, so we finally had to let him go. We warned him what would happen, but he left later that same day. He got shot in the back of the head. What? Stop it. That's actually a great lie if that cousin really... If, if that really person did get really shot in the head. Get, yeah. get shot because then he can't verify exactly. the story. Yeah, yeah. Seagal said he had done more recent security work. Including- Why is he talking about all the security work? Seagal said he had done more recent security work, including more work for... Justin, South African Bishop Desmond Tutu, and late oh, yes. Egyptian President Anwar Sadat, but only <laughs> jobs for people who are, quote, special to him. He said, quote, my wife and I just had a baby girl, so I'm trying to stay semi-retired and away from a lot of these things. From what? Overthrowing heads of state or protecting heads of state? What do you? They don't need you, buddy. They and don't the timeline need- doesn't match up. Yeah. Like, are you becoming a master during this time? Like, the timelines are all weird. It's also, like, I find it hilarious that Desmond Tutu, uh, you know, this would be at the height of the anti-apartheid movement, would be like, yes, please bring me a tall white bodyguard. (laughs) One thing that will make all black South Africans trust me in our freedom struggle is if I have a 6'4 white man who's affiliated with the CIA, who's on the opposite side of this struggle, he'll be my bodyguard. Does that, he, doesn't, he doesn't even understand his geopolitics to know that, uh, you know, that like Desmond, the CIA would have been like spying on someone like It's Desmond also important Tutu. to know that the CIA and MI5 
uh, actually helped overthrow the Shah. They did not like the Shah. They were pissed yeah. at the Shah. So it stands to reason, why would they actually be helping get the Shah out of Iran? The Shah was bad news. After they de- after they got the Shah out, they were like, oh, we've made a terrible mistake. Uh, <laughs> we should never have done that. <laughs> Which is why he was able to get safe haven at Cleveland Clinic and then eventually die in a very fancy hospital room. Uh, it's just, just a fucking... Listen, okay, I applied to the CIA. I applied. In college, Justin, I was feeling very patriotic. It was around 2002, 2003. Uh, they, a recruiter came to, to the campus, spoke to us. I was like, this is my chance. Because they literally said, we're looking for people that can speak Farsi or Arabic. I can speak Farsi. And then if you're like an actor or something, or if you're, you know, you're charismatic or something, you could be maybe potentially be a spy. And I was like, ooh, that sounds incredible. I can act. I could speak Farsi. And so I applied. I put in my, like, written application, and I got a call. Now, mind you, I don't mind saying this, at the time, I was the local weed dealer for the, for the campus. <laughs> and when they called, I was IMing with a friend, like, oh, yeah, you want to come over and get a 50 cent? And I get a call from the CIA. <laughs> I was like freaking out. And I said, hey. And they're like, oh. And you hear like the click, click, like some like weird thing in the in the back. And you're like, what the? I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And they said, uh, hi, we're with the CIA. We're just going to do like a pre-interview just to see, you know, blah, blah, blah. Just to ask you some preliminary questions. And like their second question out of the gate was, have you done any illegal drugs in the last year? And Justin, I immediately said yes. I immediately said absolutely. And the woman on the other end was like, what? What? Excuse me? I was like, oh, yeah. You guys are the CIA. I'm not going to lie to you. You're going to find it. You could walk into this campus and just yeah. figure out that I'm a huge pothead. So, <laughs> and she was so she like started giggling. And I was like, yeah, don't worry about it. I get it. You know, you don't want me. And she's like, well, no, I mean. Listen, um, if you're just, you know, clean for a year, uh, give us a call back. We're happy to, to do it. I'm going to use this. I'm going to put you down as a self-withdrawal, and then we'll move on. So, so that's I, suffice to say that if Steven Seagal did half the things that he said he was doing, and then he disclosed these things. The CIA doesn't want you, Steven Seagal. They don't want anything to fucking do with you. They don't want a fucking actor unless you're absolutely not saying anything about it and you could actually be a secret assassin for the CIA, which I'm sure has happened. I think there's a movie about it. Yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, it's just no CIA agent. You know who the real CIA agents are? Listen, I know people that have worked on classified things. It's a guy who goes quietly to work every day. Yeah. And then in his obituary, uh, they get buried in Arlington National Cemetery, <laughs> and you had no idea. You were like, <laughs> "You're like, I thought that guy was going away to Mexico or something like that." And you find out this guy, you know, that's the way it goes. You know, they're not going to tell people about, you know, what they do. I know people that you know went to went to work at manufacturing facilities, and they're like, "Oh, I work on electronics." And yeah, you find out it's like, like well, what's, like nuclear guidance systems. <laughs> what's Arnold Schwarzenegger's cover in True Lies? Like he's like a computer repair technician or like an IT consultant or something. It's like, oh, I have to, I have to go to a conference. <laughs> and then he's like in a fucking fighter jet firing a rocket. Oh god! All right, okay. So while so people are like eating up the backstory. Uh, 
the movie reviews for Above the Law were not kind. And if you were to ask me, hey, Cena, child Cena, uh, people don't like this movie, I'd be like, go fuck yourself, okay? And I would have cursed, too, because I had a potty mouth as a kid. (laughs) But the reviews of Above the Law in 1988 were awful. One review read, quote, Mr. Seagal is tall, six feet, four inches, but not terribly charismatic on screen. Even when he walks, he's still a photograph. (laughs) He looks like a seasoned 40-ish runner-up in a contest for a job as an Armani model. (laughs) (laughs) It's so cold. Because it speaks to all his core insecurities, right? Yeah. Very mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, But get this. So this movie was a box office smash hit. In 1988, it grossed $18 million. For comparison, that same year, Dirty Dancing made only $8 million. Well, you know, $18 million in 1988, and this is why you know it's like an actual, it did very well, is $43 million today. So that just goes to show you that, that you know, don't hear the 18 like it's nothing. 43, is, that's a that's a good, today, that's a, that's a great box office. And so people thought, Seagal was the next great action superstar. I mean, he was. And he was going to follow in the footsteps of Chuck Norris, Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, you name it. He capitalized on his newfound fame and began uh, a production company in 1990. With his production company, first named Seagal Nasso Productions, then Luminosity Productions, and now Steamroller Production, Seagal produced 14 movies each of which was a better title than the next. Justin, $5 if you can identify which title is not a Seagal production. Not a Seagal production. Okay, you ready? Yes. Shadow Man, A Good Man, The Glimmer Man. Uh, I'm too big of a fan of Seagal's films. Like, uh, I know this. There was no Shadow Man. Um... A good man and Glimmer Man. Now, a good man came out late. Are you, so? Did you not know about a good man? He did make a movie called A Good Man, like in like 2014 or something. Yeah, that's exactly right. 2014, A Good Man. I've seen Glimmer Man. I have not seen Good Man. He's a is Shadow Man. Really not one? No, I think this is a trick question. They're all, she did Shadow Man? What was Shadow <laughs> Man? When did that Yo, come out? Which That's a DVD one, right? Yo, bro, they're like all, everything after like, under Siege 2 was <laughs> did they yeah is a DVD movie wait we need to see can we can you pull up the trailer for Shadow Man there's thank you Shadow Hazel. Man and then there's Steven Seagal Lawman the show Lawman but these are films these are these are films these are the, the you know the but films he uses man a lot and of course because he is the man Marked for death, on deadly ground, under siege to the Glimmer Man, fire down below, oh, great one, into the sun, Shadow Man, flight of fury, urban justice, that sounds racist, pistol whipped, kill switch, (laughs) against the dark, (laughs) a good man, code of honor. Okay, let's watch the, uh, can we just watch the Shadow Man trailer? No one else on the internet is giving you this robust of a Steven Seagal breakdown for (laughs) being a con artist, by the way. No one. I know there's other shows that are probably doing Seagal, but no one's doing it the way Fraudsters are doing it. Yeah, We literally haven't even gotten to the intro yet. (laughs) We're not even on the intro of the show. We're not on the intro yet? (laughs) No. We're going to be doing Steven Seagal for the rest of the season. (laughs) 
In a top secret laboratory, okay. the world's deadliest <laughs> biological weapon, Love it. Mission Impossible 2, got it, has just been developed. Even they are scared of it. For Special Agent Jack Sloan, his only job in his Native American outfit was to keep it safe. A lot of people will die. <laughs> now, Somebody's got my daughter. They've made Somebody's it got my daughter. <laughs> I got something they want. They got something I want. Give me the eye to you. I think you're making a very big mistake. I'm done talking. No trust. Oh. You're not like that. I'm a little bit like that. But much, much worse. No deal. Oh. Sally's just up the price. So pay 40 million. May I have the item, please? That kind of manipulation makes me very angry. No mercy. Where's my daughter? <laughs> oh my god, look, there's still money in these movies. Shadow Man. Listen, you know what you're doing. No, not at all, but that's never stopped me in the past. That is definitely the most accurate thing he's ever said, yes, of course. I like how I like how it's just a convoluted thing of taken. It's like yeah. the it's like there's the worst biological weapon in the world. And now also his daughter is taken. So now yeah. it's personal. And it's like, no, you could probably could have stuck with the first plot about the biological weapon. That was enough. Arguably someone, uh, you know, saw Shadow Man. They were like, you know what? We're going to make this with Liam Neeson and about a kidnap. <laughs> this is a good time to plug our Discord, I think, because I'd love to do a movie night. And I think Steven Seagal movies would be the best thing to have. Uh, for our Discord movie nights. Uh, hit us up on our Discord, link in bio. Uh, we have probably one of the most robust pets channels on the internet going on on our Discord, so make sure you hit us up there. Yeah. Uh, so with that, <laughs> we, this is actually, we've now gone to the intro of, of the show, and so we're actually going to talk <laughs> about Seagal and his chameleon-ish tendency to adopt whatever identity suits him best in the moment. You know, he's taking method acting to a, a whole new level, and that and that's really what a fraudster is. This is like an amazing method actor. Our researcher, Emily Fusco, God bless her, compared his appropriations to that of Thanos collecting Infinity Stones. I would add that he kind of looks like Thanos as well. Steven Seagal is a martial arts genius. Many people consider me, you know, one of the great masters in my own field. <laughs> a blues savant. I was born and raised in the blues. <laughs> a former CIA Navy SEAL. You recruited me into the CIA. A doctor. Are you a doctor of some type? Well, I studied acupuncture. He told you he was a doctor? I studied acupuncture uh, in her and bone manipulation in Japan for many years. A bona fide police officer. <laughs> I make a living in the movies, but for the past 20 years, I've also been a cop. <laughs> Let Justin laugh about it. I can't. I just can't. How could so we? Stupid. What are we doing? How could we? For the past 20 years, <laughs> I've also been a police officer. <laughs> In addition to being the greatest blues guitarist, CIA asset, martial arts master. <laughs> I just, I, you know, we usually talk about Ponzi schemes and, and, and accountants <laughs> and cooking the books and stuff and, you know. White supremacists that, that like rob other white supremacists. This is incredible. And 
throughout all of this, Seagal managed to continually profit off of cultural appropriation and stolen valor throughout his entire career. And I've been wanting to do a stolen valor story for a long time now. I didn't realize it was going to come from Steven Seagal. For that reason, I can officially announce the beginning of our Race Hustlers miniseries. <laughs> Last season, we talked about David Duke, who used racism against black and Jewish people to extort poor whites. Dr. Umar Johnson, who has been raising money for a theoretical school for black children for a decade with no signs of progress. By the way, update on that. Where's the school, Dr. Umar? Where is the school? Also, I sent you $50. I'm still not in the WhatsApp group. (laughs) (laughs) And we also did an episode on white ladies who pretended to be anything but white ladies featuring Rachel Dolezal, Jessica Krug, and Hilaria Baldwin. Wow, man, rough few years for the Baldwins. And finally, the historical fraud of Friedman's Bank. This season, we're going to kick off this series with a two-part deep dive on actor Steven Seagal. That's what we can say. He's definitely an actor. Is he really an Aikido master? Is he really a former CIA agent? What else does he say about himself, and how has it benefited him? Did I also see him on the news last week on a CNBC panel discussing the war in Ukraine? What? 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 Just, in, in, my, in my time between jobs as the greatest police officer in Louisiana, great bluesman and CIA asset, I'm also an East Asian, Eastern European, I'm also an expert in Eastern European geopolitics. He wears so many hats. It's just it's just very admirable. So many hats. This is, you know, jack of all trays, fraudsters of all of them. And I'm sure his analysis was very nuanced considering he's a friend of Vladimir Putin and like a public asset of the Russian government. That's actually where his contacts are, like where he's not lying. Yeah. Is, is actually like his like relationship with the Russian government. I'm very sure. I, I'm sure he was really supportive of Ukraine's rights to self-defense. Which plays into really well, like even his like Russia ties play into like very well to his like disinformation abilities, his ability to like basically project a, a sense or an identity to everyone else. So I think I think that's. One thing that is kind of working for him, honestly, is that he knows how to manipulate people and public spheres of media. And that is exactly what Russia loves to do. But next week, we'll dig into more of his, his recent endeavors. Today, we're starting at the beginning. Today, we're talking about his strange rise to stardom, the lies that catapulted him there, and the rapid media takedown that exposed him. Let's start with the basics. Justin, let's start with a photo of a young Steven Seagal. What, what, what is, what, can you describe what he looks like for you? He has you a know, child. I, it, his childhood photo gives me a sense of why he had the confidence to say the, a lot of the things that he did. Because I will say he's somewhat uh, ambiguous in his photo. Like if you if you did say... He's half Asian. I could, I could, I could, I could believe that or something yeah. like that, right? Yeah, I would say, I would say so. He does, you know. My kid has a similar kind of look to him, a very ambiguous kind of like looks like, you know, if it's from Uzbekistan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On his uh, official website, Stephen Seagal, his bio, 
which is exactly where we want to find the truth here, right? We got we to gotta go right to the source here. His bio says, quote, Stephen was born in Lansing, Michigan on April 10th, 1952, a son of a math teacher and a medical technician. Stephen's humble childhood was underscored by a fascination with martial arts and the blues. <laughs> Just can't. Some would say, this is a strange combination. <laughs> but ask any martial arts expert or blues legend, and they will tell you that both, that it is the spirit that reaches deep within your soul that drives the artistry. You know, we don't really take Seagal at his word. Uh, his mom did corroborate some of the story to a degree in a 1990 interview with People magazine. Told People that Seagal grew up outside of Detroit and then moved to Fullerton, California at the age of five. And that he spent much of his time there taking classes at a dojo near their house. She described a young Stephen this way. He was frail and suffered from asthma. He was a puny kid back then. (laughs) (laughs) So not quite the, quote, streetwise Detroit kid that he says he was. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. It's like the way Steven Seagal presents himself as Axel Foley uh, from Beverly Hills Cop. But it's like in reality, when people say I grew up outside of Detroit, anybody that knows anything yep. about Midwestern cities or cities that had white flight, you could be talking like an hour and a half away from Detroit. Like he grew up, he grew up in Michigan. He didn't grow up in Detroit. <laughs> but we'll talk more about his Detroit claims next week. OK, so as a young adult, Seagal says he moved out of his house at 16. All right. Remember that number, people. And followed his passion for Aikido to Japan when he was 17. Do-do-do where he says he studied under the founder of Aikido, Morihei Yoshiba. I hope I pronounced that right. Now, the year he actually goes to Japan to study under the founder of Aikido changes depending on the interview he's in. Now, of course, Seagal, to cover his tracks, uh, once said on Larry King that he's, quote, slightly autistic when it comes to numbers. Come on, Stephen. If you're slightly autistic, you're supposed to get the numbers right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'm slightly autistic, which makes me bad with numbers, like Rain Man. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, everyone knows the plot of Rain Man. <laughs> Just make sure he, he knows what time Judge Wapner is. He knows how to break a man's elbow, uh, but can't remember when he studied under the literal founder of Aikido. All right, yeah. so Seagal... In the most formative time of your life, too. It's always like, oh, was I 16 that summer or 35 years old? Who knows? Who's counting? Who's counting? <laughs> so here's the thing. Seagal would have had to travel to Japan when he was 16. <laughs> Records from Fullerton College show Seagal was enrolled there from 1970 to 1971, which would have meant that Seagal would have had to travel to Japan as a 16 or 17-year-old and then returned to California to attend college for a year before dropping out. Now, impossible? No, not impossible. Implausible? Yes. Probably bullshit because he's a fraudster? Almost certainly. But we're not going to say one way or the other because we're a research-based podcast and we don't know for sure. But if we were at a bar and we were drunk and we saw Steven Seagal walk in, we would call him a fraud. Although, and if we were at (laughs) this bar with another man... Terry Dobson, a fifth-degree black belt who studied with the master from 1961 to 1969, he would also yell and call Seagal a fraudster because he told People magazine that that story is bullshit. I never heard of Seagal. 
So when <laughs> it's like claiming you played for the Bulls and then like, you know, Jordan or Scottie Pippen or any of those guys during the night's never heard of you. You know what I mean? Come on now. Like easily verifiable. Yeah. Stuff. Uh, someone who's famous enough to where, yeah, there's like he has students that, that are famous in that field. Now. Yeah. We're going to hear from a clip uh, of David Letterman now. Oh, the great fucking David Letterman. Bask in his fucking glory, people. The man was a killer when like t- I don't know if David Letterman could survive in today's climate of just being so kind of ornery and a little cutting to every celebrity that came in. But it was beautiful when he did it in the 90s. Oh, yeah. When he didn't believe somebody or he didn't like them for some reason, it was so great. Or he didn't respect them. Like you could always tell when he didn't respect yeah. one of his guests. And that's what made him like, that's what actually made him awesome. <laughs> he really did. All right. So let's go to this clip. <laughs> From David Letterman, uh, talking about uh, where where Seagal is talking about his time in Japan. <laughs> but first, let's go to the intro of Seagal uh, coming on to the stage. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, please say hello to the one, the only, Stephen Seagal. <laughs> <His> fringe jacket. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Welcome to the program. Thank you, sir. Well, that's that's a beautiful coat. I, I'm guessing that's uh, American Indian of some kind. Is something that right? like that. Yeah. Where did you get that? His jacket looked like something you would see in a museum from the village people. His jacket looked like four big pieces of craft singles with fringe just cut into them, put together as a coat. <laughs> His jacket looked like a leftover TP from a 1950s Western black and white film. His <laughs> his, his his coat looks like all the felt for all the Muppets in the world got stretched out and made into a, a coat. Is this when he's pitching the, was it Fire Down Below? The one where he's a kind of a Native American in it? Yeah, exactly. Where did you get that? Uh, we had a costume designer kind of have this stuff made for the movie and I was kind of in the mood to, you know, talk about the movie and thought I'd wear something appropriate for the weather in the movie. Well, that's great. I, I was thinking that maybe a tribe somewhere in this country uh, knew you and liked you and had made you an honorary member well, of the that's tribe. that's true. That, that is you, true. See, that's a much better story. And, uh... You can use that on your next talk show. <laughs> in fact, if I study you, I could, like, maybe even become a talk show host. Oh, no, no, no. They don't just give these to chimps. You gotta really... <laughs> You know, David Letterman doesn't have to say it, but he's calling Steven Seagal out for being such a piece of shit for wearing the Native American jacket on the show. And then even the Kalengo, you know, that's a story that you could use because it's like totally like you do things like that. Yeah. You totally wear something from a different culture and then claim links to it. Like David Letterman's so brilliant that like, uh, you know, he's just killing you and you really have to pay attention to what he's what he's saying. And like. We have a thing about virtue signaling these days. David Letterman is virtue signaling there. He's letting everyone know where he stands on cultural appropriation, but he's doing it in a way, in like a very classic, sarcastic 90s way. And like, he's part of the movement there, David Letterman. You know what I mean? He's calling that guy out. And he's like, well, why don't you go there? You're a fucking idiot. Go ahead. Keep it going. Yeah. Keep talking. (laughs) Okay. So back to Letterman talking to Seagal here. It's, Beautiful. Watch art, people. Real art. I, did, I don't know what I was saying. I'm, I'm upset with Paul. Please forgive me. With me? Yes. I'm yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, and I'm the Olympic fever. 
<laughs> I have Olympic fever. Uh, tell me something about your yourself, your background. You, you've led a very interesting life, haven't you? Oh, uh, not really. <laughs> kind of a bore, Dave. Where were That's you from? why I'm here. I want a little excitement. Where are you from originally? Where were you born? Uh, Michigan. Great state, Michigan. The... Not too many people out there from Michigan, huh? And uh, still be in this weather. And then you you moved to California, and then you spent. Uh, was it 15 years in Japan? How did you get from Michigan to Japan? What took you there? Uh, when I was young, I saw the martial arts being demonstrated at a football halftime. And I uh, was fascinated with that. Wait a minute. And Pause that. Oh, remember in the intro of Above the Law, everyone, that was supposed to be like semi-autobiographical. It was actually a baseball game in that one. Again... Like little inconsistencies popping up why, here and there. Yeah, why? Why would he just? Why would he change that? That detail? And he was smart enough not to claim Detroit here. Yeah, because he knows Letterman's kind of onto him from that first exchange. So he just says Michigan, broadly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's let's keep it. Let's keep the. How old were you when you went to Japan? Mm, probably when I went to live there, I was about seventeen years old. Wow. And this was all right with your family. Everything was okay. No problems there. Yeah. What was that experience like? I mean, you're 15 years, you are essentially Japanese after that length of time, I would guess, huh? <laughs> I mean, you know. I, I mean, I was a little bigger than them, but I spoke like them. Pause, pause like it. Them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. David Letterman pulling teeth right now, David Letterman. He is trying to do everything he possibly can to get this Neanderthal to say anything compelling in this interview. Well, and it's also what I like to is Steven Seagal, even in the, his small claims, like. If you know anything about Japan, one of the most ethnocentric societies on earth and one of its most homogenous, for Steven Seagal to say, I spoke like the Japanese. Oh, never. Never. Absolutely. An insane claim. It's like, you can speak Japanese, but <laughs> especially you're talking about in the 1960s Japan. We're not even talking about this current era of Japan. It's like, they would be like, he, listen, man, you are always going to be a foreigner in that society. Everybody knows that. It's just it's just it's just ridiculous uh, to make a claim like that. And did you did you have a job there, or were you just there studying, or, or a little of both? I started out studying uh, martial arts, uh, acupuncture, herbality, bone manipulation, things like that, and then from there I went into uh, uh, some writing and security operations and things like that, and uh, then I then I started teaching the martial arts. Yeah. And, and security operations. Yes, security. Uh, uh, <laughs> One of the most safe societies on earth. Yeah, I was uh, running security for a Foot Locker that was there. <laughs> even even the Yakuza doesn't even use guns in Japan. That's how like safe that country is. <laughs> so David Letterman again, the great David Letterman, goes on to ask Seagal another question about this kind of conspicuous lie. His supposed work on security operations. By the way. Anyone in the CIA, anyone that does security operations, is it going to say something on a national talk show, like a late night show? You know, I did some bone manipulation and then I went into some writing and some security operations and stuff. There's no and stuff. You just stop at writing. You just you don't talk about it. <laughs> you just don't. <laughs> Come on. I did things. Over there. I did some stuff. Did some stuff. Some stuff. <laughs> did did you or did you not work with the CIA? Did I make that up? Are people just saying that to be funny, look, or did you look, actually have a look, job look. with the Central Intelligence Rubs his Agency? nose, looks oh, I down. Like the way you say that. Um, well, oh, I like you know, it's kind of please. a personal thing. Self soothing. Tough to talk about. This. You can't talk about it. So that means you were with the CIA. Biting, biting lip. <laughs> because if you weren't, you could talk about anything you wanted. 
Well, if you want to put it that way, uh, it's pretty embarrassing, and I, I wouldn't like to talk about it because it's kind of look a at that rubbing his face. These are wait, pause it. I'll ask you one more time, and then I'm going to hit you with a snowball. In, in, in the the ten seconds that he even before he started answering. You don't have, I'm not like some sort of micro expressions expert people. These are really basic things. Looking down, avoiding eye contact, rubbing his hands, touching his face, like taking a deep breath. All of these things are classic signs of someone that's feeling uncomfortable, that doesn't feel a lot of confidence in what they're saying. And if he didn't feel a lot of confidence in what he's saying, if he was actually telling the truth, he wouldn't be doing anything like that. He wouldn't actually be talking about these things in the first place. Go ahead. I actually learned uh, all of the things that you just said during my time as a CIA interrogator <laughs> in uh, 1972 Japan. I'll ask you one more time and then I'm going to hit you with a snowball. <laughs> <laughs> one time um, when I had a relationship with those people, I was uh, assigned to an airport in Miami and I was there to monitor the movement of a certain uh, faction of a very militant group from one of those Arab countries and, and I, I had a desk there and wanted everything to be really tranquil so that I could you know have a, a what we would call a calm theater for op- optimum yeah. operating conditions exactly and, and an elderly lady brought a dog in you know they have those dogs in those little plastic yeah, the cages. big kennel flight carrier yeah. sure. and and uh, she said can I just leave this here for a minute I gotta go do something and I said sure you know nice guy that I am and when I went to take the dog back into storage for a minute so that it wouldn't be there, I noticed that the dog had deceased and was dead. No more. The dog was dead. It was, the dog was essentially now a little more than luggage. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I... Uh, I thought to myself that if she came back and noticed that her pet was deceased, that it might be a great exactly. problem and disturb the tranquility of my perfect theater for uh, <laughs> surveillance and observation of the kind of things I should be concentrating yeah. on. So I said to myself, uh, you know, if I want to be like really a sophisticated spook, I got to like, you know, operate and think quick. And I sent one of my people. I mean, this was a typical little Bichon, you know, those little white poodles. They mm-hmm. all look alike. So I said, you know, there's Stop. a pet shop. This man is here. a monster. Go get a live dog. We'll swap collars. She'll never know the it's difference. It's a great move. Excellent idea. And I figured this way I keep my job, uh, you know, because so that you're I broke. can be effective and, and, and everything was great. And we did it successfully. A couple hours later, she comes back, and I figured, well, let's make this a little theatrical. And I opened the cage, and the dog came running out with its collar on, looked just exactly alike. And she sees the dog screams and faints. And we went over, and we started, you know, calling paramedics and stuff and revived her. And when I was talking to her, I said, what happened? And she said, well, I was bringing the dog back here for burial. I don't know how he got, came back to life. This is how dumb and, Steven Seagal is. This is and, like a... And Letterman is literally looking at the audience fired. and nodding, no, they this never happened. happened. Never no, this never happened. happened. That didn't happen. We have to do a commercial. Never. We'll be right and what's, back. What's great, what's great about that is it dodges all things. It, do, it, it completely puts all the focus on this long story that doesn't actually make sense in the context in which it comes from. So it's like, yes, the CIA assigned me to watch militant Arabs that were flying into Miami. So I allowed a woman with luggage to distract me. And then I went on a side mission away from the militants at an airport that I was like, none of it makes any sense, but it's totally like here. It's here. Look at it's red herring. It's like, look over here. There's, here's this funny dead dog story. I also love that it does sound like a side mission. You would, you would play 
in like GTA and then you just make like, this is such a terrible mistake. And then it's like, you're Steven Seagal. Wait, you know, that come to the thing, Steven Seagal as the main character in a video game is kind of incredible because that is the only place where any of these things are believable. Jean-Claude Van Damme has a show that's a self-parody of this. It's called JCVD, where it's like, what if yeah, Jean-Claude Van Damme really yeah. was a secret agent? But yeah, it's pretty hilarious that like that's the way Steven Seagal. Yeah, someone should just make a movie about Steven Seagal, but just his claims are the script. Oh, is this like a platform? Oh my God, there is a Steven Whoa. Seagal video game. Stop. I've it. never heard of this. This looks like Nintendo. Oh, because it was on Neo Geo. Is it Neo Geo? Oh, it's Neo Geo. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's why I never heard of it. Because Neo Geo was expensive, remember? Yeah, that was... If your friend had Neo Geo, they had like 600 bucks. Exactly, that was expensive. Look at this, this is pretty good. So they did a lot of good cell shading. This is when you had like uh, Pit Fighter back in the day. I don't know if you remember that game. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which later spawned Mortal Kombat. Yeah. There's some really good cell shading there. Wow. Canceled game. (laughs) Was it canceled? (laughs) Oh, it was a prototype. Oh. Look, by the way, look at the stance. They got the stance right. Like, his hands are always so low, which is like, I never see fighters do that. It's so sad. This is brutal. Oh, my God. <laughs> Steven Seagal video. Game. All right. Now, on the uh, Steven Seagal game note, let's take a quick break for our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll hear from Steven Seagal's first wife. Jesus. Could you imagine Steven Seagal climbing on top of you? Oof. My heart would my heart my heart would stop. It's one thing falling in love with a house, picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Mr. Hamburglar. Bravo, bravo. He said, of all the McDonald's burgers I've ever hamburgled, these are the hottest, juiciest, and tastiest. Brubble. Hurry in and enjoy one of our 350 bundles, like a daily double and small fries, for a limited time. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any of the offer comparison to prior classic burgers. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back, everyone. It's the 70s now. The Vietnam War is a thing. Nixon is the president. Women in the U.S. just got the right to have a credit card separate from their husbands. Yikes. And Michael Bolton just put out his first album, the self-titled Michael Bulletin. Oh, my God. This is... Oh, that's the most Midwestern thing Hazel's done to date. <laughs> so much. If you if you like that, you're really gonna enjoy like Sam Cooke. <laughs> oh, I know Sam. <laughs> okay. Yes. 
I'm aware. Wait, wait. <laughs> I also really like Sam Cooke. I'm not. I'm not a total Neanderthal. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like it's like. I mean, it's you know. <laughs> hey, Sam Cooke was dead. Somebody had to do it. Yeah, somebody had to fill in. I don't want to hear it. 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 <laughs> you, I don't want to hear a bad word about Michael Bolton. All right, we're moving on. We're moving on. That'd be so funny if it just became. It's like it's like more Michael Bolton. So Seagal was becoming fluent in Japanese, studying Aikido and bone manipulation, and doing quote security operations while based out of Japan. He also had a family. In an L.A. airport in 1974, he met his first wife, Miyako Fujitani, who was herself an Aikido instructor. At that time, he was around 22. She was 27. Fujitani and Seagal were married from 1975 to 1986. They had two kids together, Kentaro and Ayoko. Ayako. Ayoko? In an interview in 2000, Fujitani said this of Seagal. When I met Steve, he had long hair and he was very tall and skinny. <laughs> Chuckles. I hate that type. Skinny with long hair. I was frightened. He looked like a Japanese ghost. And he had one of those Hawaiian shirts. The real bright ones, you know? <laughs> Later, when I got to know him better, I noticed he had very attractive eyes. And his way of speaking was nice and soft. I like how Steven Seagal dre- like cosplayed Magnum P.I. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how he ended up getting his first wife. She also explained how he funded his move to Japan. She says, He said he was going to Japan. He had received some money from an insurance company because of a knee injury he got in karate. <laughs> Wait a minute. So Seagal basically got an insurance payout, if we're to believe this, which I have no problem, and he funded it to go to Japan. If you've been hurt in a car accident, a fall, or any kind of accident, you may be entitled to money. Get the money you deserve for your injuries. Call 1-800-677-2020 if you've been hurt by anything. Anything. If you've been hurt by anything. Do you want to go to Japan? Do you want to become an Aikido instructor? Have you been injured in a martial arts? Then we can fund your trip and your future to Japan. Was your leg swept by a member of Cobra Kai (laughs) on the orders of an unethical coach were you burned badly by a hayukin fireball from ryu then you are entitled to damages <laughs> so stupid i don't think you can go to a lawyer and go i had a karate accident i think it's like i think that's what karate is uh, sorry i think you got karate think you got karate that's what happened sorry uh you were injured uh fighting is that right is that right it's all okay <laughs> He's probably like injured by the wood block. He probably just punched it <laughs> and it like didn't break. <laughs> they said they said it was a breakable breakable wood and it wasn't and uh, it was difficult. I'm very upset. Fujitani and Seagal spent their married life in Japan in, from 1974 to 1980. Seagal says he was the first foreigner to operate a dojo out of Japan and claimed to have fought the Yakuza telling movie line Movie line. The, the New York Times of Entertainment News telling Movie Line, quote, I got right up in the faces. I was a tenacious motherfucker, man, and fearless. 
in reality, Seagal <laughs> merely in reality Seagal merely taught classes at the dojo, founded by Fujitani's father, owned by her mother, and managed by Fujitani herself. Okay, so he was the hired help on this thing. And according to Fujitani, at most, quote, he once chased away a few drunks from the dojo. He was never involved with the Yakuza. <laughs> I love the idea that Steven Seagal like, thinks he's facing down the Yakuza. It's like, you know, this man who had cut off his own pinky finger in front of his boss. Yeah. Uh, uh, as shame for his dishonor was scared of me. <laughs> yeah. What is it like? Uh, uh, what is that? Uh, great Instagram is... Um, uh, Shibuya Meltdown. <laughs> Some drugs from Shibuya Meltdown. If you don't know that Instagram, go check it out. The trains, the way they run in Tokyo, they stop at a certain point, I think around like midnight or something. And so since Tokyo is so big, if you miss the train, you're stuck in Shibuya. And so these drunk business guys end up passing out on the streets and are hammered in Shibuya. And someone goes around and takes all these Instagram pictures of them. And it's hilarious. Anyways, the interview... Also asked Fujitani what it was like after Seagal left for L.A. in 1980. Well, he left very gradually. He would go to America and run his dojo there. But once he was gone, he was gone. When he left, I had to start all over. It was very hard. On top of running the dojo, I had to raise my children. I don't know how we got by. Sometimes we could only afford cheap brown rice for dinner. Man, brown rice sucks. This is awful. Steven Steve Seagal is a shithead. It's so frustrating that, that he did this. Also, you know, you're, you are making money. It's like there's a lot of good social services in Japan. You, don't, you didn't have to leave. But No, but in Steven Seagal's favor, uh, he actually did grow up as a black child in Louisiana <laughs> eating that dirty brown rice with a little bit of black eyed peas what is he studied with the great bluesman <laughs> yo lord watch you give me <laughs> in another interview with Spy Magazine in 1993 Fujitani said that when he left he told her I'll always do the right thing the article goes on to say he then availed himself to her savings and hide off to America, where, without bothering to divorce her, he married Adrian LaRusso. Ah, he's a bigamist. Took his ex-wife's savings, not even his ex-wife, his first wife's savings, hurried off, that's what hide means, hurried off to America, and then remarried again. So he took advantage of vulnerable people financially. That's uh, what we do here on Frosters. We pick those people out. Who's more vulnerable than a mother and two children raising their kids alone? Well, Steven Seagal's first wife. And then he runs off to America and marries someone else. Mm. A Japanese family that trusted you, gave you a job in their dojo when you had no basis of being over there and everything. Jesus. And I'm sure they got a lot of heat for even letting you work at that dojo. <laughs> like, yeah, Jesus. When Seagal was asked about his relationship to his ex-wife and his children, he says this on Arsenio Hall in 1990. Well, I have a 15-year-old son in Japan that's definitely... Oh, okay. How often do you get to see him? Not too often. Yeah. It's one of those difficult political one of, things. Oh, what, what do you mean by that? Well, I, I heard that you, like, know a lot about women and that you're real experienced. No, so no, no. You should know No, I know a lot about rejection. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of what I'm talking about. Kind of, you know, the only time I ever heard, hear from her is, like, 
give me more money. And I keep saying, yeah, here's the money. When do I get to see my kids, you know? Yeah. Oh, it's that kind of thing. Yeah, that's that's a tough area. We won't even get into that. Well, um, oh, it would have been easy for you to see your kids by not leaving Japan. It's like it's like. To, he makes himself sound like the victim. It's actually he took his wife's money. Yeah. After th- that family taking him in, allowing him to work at the dojo, and he ties himself to her savings and abandons his son, and then presents himself as like being an exploited father. Wow, just wow, guys. But it, you know, <laughs> oddly enough, Justin, since the gall is you know Irish and Jewish, uh, these guys fail up. And so, as it turns out, <laughs> abandoning his wife and his child and moving to L.A. turned out to be uh, actually a fantastic move for him career-wise. Seagal spent most of the 80s teaching Aikido at his dojo in West Hollywood, where he claims to have taught students such as Sean Connery and James Coburn. Sean Connery actually corroborated this story. Seagal was hired as a fight choreographer on Connery's final ever James Bond film. By the way, Sean Connery, not the greatest guy ever, but still, story nonetheless. Uh, the, the James Bond film that it was his last was Never Say Never in 1983. Sean Connery in 1996 was on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, another shiny example uh, of mediocrity, and described how Seagal broke his wrist while they were training. Apparently, Sean Connery... Got a little cocky. Who would have thought? And Steven Seagal broke his wrist. I'm going to do a film called um, Never See Never Again. And there was a possibility I was going to do Aikido and what have you. And I got a hold of Steven and we had this um, training in the building where I had an apartment. And he was really very, very good and everything. And then I got a little cocky because I thought I knew what I was doing. Because, you know, the principle is it's defense. So it's a pyramid. And I got a bit flash and I did that. And he broke my wrist. Wow. And, uh, oh, yeah. And it was uh, so well put together here. I still have it broken. Is it still broken? Yeah. yeah. That's 12, oh, no, 15 years ago. And it's still broken? Yeah, I just found out last year. They said, it's, it's, it's okay doing that. It's, it's doing this. It's very unfortunate, you know, because I use this wrist to slap a woman. I slap a woman when she won't leave it alone. When she wants the last word, and now that my wrist is broken, I can no longer slap my woman, <laughs> as I like to do. <laughs> just go, just and please, just go to Sean Connery slaps women, and just put that into YouTube, and you'll see what I'm talking about. All right, so we have a quick interview right now, Rob from the YouTube channel McDojo Life. I have been following this guy for quite a while, and I had reached out to him. I think almost last year, and was like, "Yo, do you mind coming on our show?" He calls out martial arts frauds all over the internet, and he does it constantly. He's been doing this for almost 10 years now. So let's go to that interview. Welcome back. We are with Rob from Mick Dojo Life, one of the most popular YouTube channels that I, I watch. That is incredible. Uh, Rob, welcome to Fraudsters. You are going to be our martial arts resident expert. How are you? Uh, living the dream. If I am the most popular YouTube you watch, then <laughs> you have very low standards, which I appreciate, by the way. Listen, I listen to like a lot of nerdy books and stuff, so like this is great. <laughs> Watching you break down these frosters is amazing. Rob, before we dive in, tell me a little bit about your background, and you're not just some guy on YouTube talking about martial arts. You have experience in this stuff. Yeah, for sure. So, 
I've been in the martial arts industry tomorrow will mark 25 years because I received martial arts as a birthday present when I was 12 years old. Uh, my mom got me a year's worth of karate when I was 12. And I've never stopped since then. So every birthday, it marks another year in the industry. So it'll be 25 years. I'm a third degree black belt in karate, a third degree black belt in something called Lissa Jodo, which is a weapon system nobody's really heard of. It basically just means I'm good at nunchucks. I'm a purple belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I'm a 6-0 amateur boxer, 4-2 amateur kickboxer. I was on an international kickboxing team for two years called Team Full Circle, uh, where we did international um, kickboxing tournaments. Uh, I never counted those fights. They're in the hundreds, I guess. Um, but they're tournament fights, so no one really counts them. <laughs> um, and then uh, uh, what else? I've uh, been doing, I ran a martial arts school for four years. I've been doing martial arts business consulting for 10. Let me just say, already your experience is like 10x more than Steven Seagal's experience. <laughs> so this is what's so fantastic about having you on the show today. You know, Steven Seagal is the guy that we're focusing on today. And now we've, we've talked about him quite a bit. You know, some of the things we've learned about him is that, yes, he is actually a black belt in Aikido. Yes. There's no debating that. Although his wife did say the reason he was given the black belt is because one of the judges was dozing off during his uh, final evaluation. So, <laughs> so knowing Aikido, I highly doubt that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, like the the thing is, is like I I'm all for hating people for the reason we should hate them. I'm I'm not about witch hunting. Um, when it comes down to like what I do, the reason I've never been hit with a slander or liable suit before ever in the decade I've been calling out frauds in the industry is I always have proof of what I'm saying. Of course, yeah. And so when it comes down to Steven Seagal, I think that he's a giant garbage piece of human being. Um, I think that he has obviously been caught dead to rights several times molesting Hollywood celebrities, uh, female Hollywood celebrities. He's been caught multiple times assaulting actors on the set. One of my favorite stories, by the way, is from John Leguizamo. Um, yeah. I think that Steven Seagal has egregiously lied and put himself in a position holier than thou, specifically because he's called himself God before, um, <laughs> holier than thou than he really is in the martial arts industry. Doing things like trying to take, you know, credit for teaching Anderson Silva a front kick, which would be one of the first things you learn in any martial arts school you ever go to. Um, but yeah, we, we're going to, Steven Skull is going to take credit for that. It's, it's one of those things where he's become a meme or a caricature of himself. And I think that's because he's been surrounded by a lot of yes men in his life who look at him and in order to ride that Hollywood fame, decided that, you know what, I could say no to him, but then he might get rid of me. So I'm just going to keep saying yes and making him feel good about himself. Let's talk about this Aikido thing real quick. So let's let's we have a clip of it. This is how Seagal describes his Aikido practice as well. Y'all have y'all have y'all have to have that clip of him calling himself God, right? Do we have that one? Oh my God! See, there's honestly, this I've watched so much Seagal, and I have not. <laughs> I would yeah. remember that, but I think I hit. I hit a point where I couldn't. I oh, couldn't it's, it's difficult. It it really is. It's yeah. a difficult process to watch enough Seagal that you have to talk to somebody about your experience because you can't hold mm -hmm. all that in. You know, it's bad for you. It's how no, you it's bad. It's it's <laughs> it's poison. It's like okay. Oh, we recorded for an hour before we got to the intro of the episode because <laughs> his claims. <laughs> Like we, we like we like we we we're gonna have to do an hour just on his blues guitar <laughs> mastery. Uh, I, I did a couple clips of him live, and it's. I mean, 
it's not the worst I've heard. <laughs> I call him a better musician than a martial artist, but yeah, that's what other people said too. So they're saying they're yeah. saying something. <laughs> All right, so this is how he describes Aikido to Larry King: a seven belt with peace. Right. There's an association with violence. Right. Your art is defensive, is it not? Aikido is primarily defensive. Explain defensive. that a little. Well, I mean, your Aikido, Bukito, Makato, Sasato. You know, there's like 15 different things. What Damn, is your... Larry King. That's why Larry dropping knowledge. You know, and he was a priest of one sort or another. And um, he developed an art where there was no punching, kicking, blocking. And he believed that he could, you know, develop this art in such a way that you could redirect the the attack of, of someone and uh, put them down and pin them without, you know, beating them up or breaking their neck or their bones. And there's a reason why I chose Aikido as my art, and right. I have... You don't see any of that in his first it, three it, movies. There's just yeah. arms breaking all over the place. Next week. <laughs> but in the same process, you also have a lethal weapon, and you, as you said, could kill me with one thing. That's part of a one defense. Thing. One quick thing. One very quick thing. Uh, yeah, it'd be so quick that you'd never feel a thing, Larry. In fact, you know, forget about working. If you never need the guy to die, call me. Might be a good way to go. You could yeah, get into an open. Yeah, so quick you wouldn't feel it. But uh, how does that come into a defensive learning? Well, if I kill yeah, them, I don't you know, have to defend myself against them anymore. Kill. It's quite simple. Yeah, uh, why is this? Um, you know, what ends up happening in Aikido is they would probably kill themselves, you know? <laughs> you know the harder they come, God, those first three movies are so good, though. I remember them. Do you have to be six foot four and 220 uh, pounds to be good at it? Probably My better hands. if you're smaller in Aikido because you're center. You're, you're taller. As right. I'm, as I'm very tall for Aikido. I mean, it's really probably better if your center of gravity is lower. You can get inside. The attacker. It's probably more convenient. What'd you think of Bruce the Lee? attacker? I love Bruce Lee. Yeah, I thought he was wonderful. Jackie Chan. Love Jackie. I'm his biggest fan. I've known Jackie forever, and I've done the very best I can to, you know, get him started in America, including trying to get him on your show. And uh, you know, I love Jackie. I'm his biggest fan. I think he's Jackie. Really the best at what so he does. wait, could we pause? Well, we is he taking credit for starting Jackie Chan's career here now? A little bit. I do believe that he is trying to take credit for. Giving Jackie Chan his startup and I've been trying to get him in America. You know, I'm trying to get him on your show. Like, I'm pretty sure Jackie Chan could do that shit on his own. Yes, homie. He's been in the industry. He had movies well before uh, Steven Seagal had movies. <laughs> yeah. He is an international yeah. celebrity. He actually has. I don't know if y'all know this or not, but Jackie Chan has platinum and gold albums. Like overseas, he's yeah. a singer. Like yeah. that dude's a superstar. <laughs> he didn't need Steven yeah. Seagal. There's so much of uh, Steven Seagal making claim to fame. Uh, wait, wait, but just on the Aikido point, is that accurate? The way he described all the Aikido stuff there. Just want to so make sure. Aikido is kind of interesting. The the actual definition of Aikido translates into the way of unifying life energy, or also the way of the harmonious spirit. It's supposed to be an art that's meant to be peaceful. It's supposed mm. to be about being peaceful. A lot of the attacks in Aikido simulate kind of like sword attacks. So you'll see a lot of people with their hands raised up, like they're doing chopping motions and the person's supposed to be defending against like a sword. Um, so it's a little bit more rooted in tradition than anything else. The weird thing about Aikido that a lot of people don't see though is that Oh Sensei himself, and people are going to hate me for this, but Oh Sensei himself was like knocking people around the room without touching them. He was like using his chi power. So if you like look up videos, old videos of Oh Sensei, we're talking about a 90 year old man who was waving his hand at people and they're flipping and flying all over the place. Right. And so 
when you have an art that's kind of rooted in things like that, does that mean that body mechanics doesn't still work? Sure, I'm sure some of the body mechanics will still apply and work and things like that. But Aikido is 90% tradition and 10% wrist locks. <laughs> so oh, it's like wow. most of okay. Aikido is wrist locks. And, you know, can you use that? A lot of jujitsu guys are right now. A lot of jujitsu guys are enjoying trying to Im implement wrist locks into their game because leg locks became a thing that was no longer taboo. So they're like, well, I'm going to try to do wrist locks too, because why would I ignore the wrist? Um, the old saying from Dean Lister, why would you ignore 50% of the human body, right? So back in the day, jujitsu, people didn't really do leg locks. They thought that it was a bad thing, like it was taboo for you to do. But then people started doing it and they were like, these are great. And so now jujitsu is a lot of guys doing leg locks, uh, heel hooks and toe holds. There's a story of, of uh, Sean Connery doing training with Seagal. I don't know if you've heard of this one, but he, Shankar is on like the, I think it's like the Tonight Show or something like that. Talking to Johnny Carson or something or Leno. And he is like, you know, I was doing training with Seagal. <laughs> Sean Connery also was a dude who said that he openly admitted to smacking around his spouses if they had it coming to them. You know, Sean yeah. Connery, the Bond. I would imagine that they those two would hang out together for sure. That makes right? complete sense. But apparently <laughs> Steven Seagal broke his wrist uh so i guess that could that come from a wrist lock as well yeah for sure i mean you can like especially on willing participants like uh usually in martial arts demonstrations somebody is willingly allowing themselves to be uh done like the technique to be used on them so like standing wrist locks if i was showing that to you which is why a lot of them work in theory not necessarily in practice is that you have somebody who's willingly giving over a limb and saying, mm. yes, please do this to me. And I'll either tap or I'll let you know verbally, hey, please stop whenever the pressure becomes too much. But then you have like a douchebag who will take that opportunity to really try to hurt you on purpose to show that it works. That's more for their ego. Like if it works, it works. You don't have to hurt somebody to prove that. And I think that that's a problem. Like we were talking earlier about like the, the story of John Lake Wazamo getting hit on set by Steven Seagal. And they were on the set of Executive Decision. And that was one of those movies Great where they film. like, Great oh, yeah. it was Great a film. solid D minus. Just <laughs> it made the letters at least. And then John Lake Wazamo gets winds up getting elbowed on the set and everybody just kind of lets it happen. It's like you're openly allowing abuse to happen around a man who's abusing people. Um, that's probably not good because you're now enabling this type of behavior by not speaking out against it. You know, it's jacked up. Do you have the clip, Hazel? Is this the clip? I'm not sure. I think this is the clip. There's a couple of John Leguizamo out there. Um, a lot of him making fun of the way Steven Seagal runs. runs. But maybe this <laughs> is it. Time, man. I don't know what it is. We, we freak out. because you, you, You're so good with voices. Any famous voices? You're oh, here you go. This is I, I do a little... Uh, Steven Seagal, a little uh, Al Pacino. Cool. Yeah, you know. Steven Seagal. Yeah, that, that wasn't easy. That was, yeah, I, I did a movie with him called uh, uh, Executive Decision. Doesn't even remember. And, awful. Yeah, yeah, that well, awful. That's, how, that's how good that movie was to yeah. him. You know, he was and, in it. And the he first day we, we get together for rehearsal with the actors and the director, he comes in, I'm in command. What I say is law. You disagree? And I started cracking. I was like, <laughs> I thought he was kidding. We were yeah, just hanging yeah. out. Yeah. And he aikidoed me against the brick wall, pow, knocked all the air, air out of me. I was like, why? <laughs> I mean, what I really want to say is how big and fat he is and how he runs like a bitch. <laughs> Look at it online. You can see he runs like this. I'm not kidding. <laughs> 
He does run like that <laughs> in that like the early well, movies. What happens when you never run? You yeah. don't know how to do it. <laughs> in like Above the Law and even like uh, Marked for Death and stuff like that. When he's running through the streets, I think in a couple scenes, I always remembered he always runs so strangely. Yeah, it's a, it's a very oh, this scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The arms just flipping and flopping around there. It's kind of like when you have like a, a fight scene and the choreographers are really bad, so they don't like show the fight for a very long period of time. They just yeah. go clip, clip, clip. So you just assume good things are happening. That's kind of how they film him running. You know, they yeah, show looking- a little bit at a time and they're like, ah, we don't like it. We're just going to switch the clip. This is a long chase. This is such <laughs> a, this is a three, now. this is a three day shoot. Just this chase. Just, just getting small, him to run. It. Akito is ass. There we go. There we go. Akito is ass. <laughs> to, to go back to your point about Akito, like, so you say the, the, it actually makes sense why Steven Seagal would have went into it. If there's this tradition of sort of like performative, mm. uh, I guess, exhibitions, right? Uh, like that very much links to the recent ones that we're seeing Seagal like releasing from Russia where he's sort of barely touching someone's wrist and they're doing 84 backflips. Like there are guys in WWE. They're like, man, that guy's really selling out there. (laughs) Nailed it. Yeah. It's it's weird. Like Akito in itself is kind of surrounded more in tradition and trying to learn a little bit. Like you wear typically wear a Hakama in Akito. Like you're not going to see a lot of dudes just wearing shorts. Um, You know, there's a tradition to it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think the problem is, is that when you try to sell it, as something that it's really not. And it's not really mm-hmm. a self-defense art. I mean, it's it's more about understanding the culture and the history and lineage. And it's good to move, but you're not I how many Aikido black belts are we really seeing in the UFC? You know, right. like yeah, you know, like it, you're just not. And there's a reason for it, it's because it's not really built that way. But then you know, you have somebody who's trying to present it as something it's not. Um, I think that it was cool for Hollywood. I think that it made for good footage. Um, but at the same time, him trying to make it out like he himself is always the badass, always the, the baddest one in the room. The guy who taught the people who are the badasses is like, you didn't, man. Like, I'm sorry. And it might hurt people's feelings to hear it, but he was brought on as a gimmick. Yeah. He was brought into the, those UFC fighters locker rooms because they thought it was amusing to them. Like Anderson Silva learned a front kick well before Steven Seagal. And then, you know, everybody knows that, which is why it's such a joke. And that's a shame because imagine how much impact he could have had in a positive way. So, yeah, like if he actually talked about Japan on its own terms, right? And like actually used some of his insights as someone that was there for a period of time, rather than sort of like appropriating it as a way to make himself look like something that he's not, right? Before we get to this next clip, I wanted to ask more about kind of like the spirit of Aikido and like the lifestyle that Aikido masters are supposed to have. One of the things we, we had a Michael Jai White clip that talked about the Anderson Silva uh, kick and stuff like that. But he talked about how if you are a martial arts master, there's a certain lifestyle you're supposed to live. You're not supposed to necessarily be like a movie star necessarily. You could be a movie star, but not necessarily like live like a hard life. Um, can you talk about that? Like, what is the Aikido master life supposed to be, if you know much about it? See, I, I, this is something that I think I disagree with in that sentence. I think people are people. Mm. That If you're a martial arts instructor, you're just a person. Yeah. You're a person who provides a service. 
for some reason, we don't put almost anyone else up on these pedestals, but we automatically expect it out of martial arts instructors. It's it's kind of dumb to me. And I think what it does is it actually winds up harming students more than anything else, because the moment you go into a martial arts facility, you're automatically giving that person a power over you. Mm. You just are. You kind of have to in a way, because I have to admit that, you know, something I don't. And I need to listen to what you say so I can get better at this particular skill. So you're automatically giving that person power over you. But then to add on top of that, some of the things that are in pop culture, like honor and integrity and respect and discipline, you're automatically assuming all of these virtues just simply because they have a title of a job. I don't think that that's correct. And I think that's actually dangerous for students. I think when a student automatically gives all of this credit to somebody that they just met, I think that that's detrimental. It's only going to set them up for failure or abuse. Um, which is what I do all day long is deal with martial arts, frauds, cults, and con artists. And I think that's step one to basically being involved in a cult is you're automatically giving over all this power unjustly. They haven't earned it. They just had a title. And so just because he's a title of master or, or uh, instructor or Sifu or sensei, none of that shit really matters. Why? Because they're just people, you know, like Bruce Lee used to eat weed. Like he grew up, he's a Hollywood star in the seventies. You don't think he was getting high as shit. You were incorrect. Yeah. But we automatically want to think that, oh man, like he had to be the super disciplined person. I'm sure he was in a lot of aspects of his life to be able to be as successful as he was, but he wasn't unflawed. People have flaws. And so I think that it's incorrect to automatically assume a standard of a lifestyle based on someone's title. You know, like if I'm, I would never do that to my barber. I'd never be like, yo, Steve. Like, uh, could you give me some advice about my relationship and uh, 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 with my marriage? Or could you give me relationship advice? Or could you give me advice about how to fix my car? Or, uh, hey, man, my dad's getting on to me. Can you help me out? I'd be like, no, here's some money. Cut my hair. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Yeah. That, I love that, though. The human condition is messy. We are messy as humans. And that's kind of like part of life. And, and to like deny that is kind of den- denying our humanity to a certain extent. And we want yeah, okay to put these flawed. people on pedestals. It's OK to have flaws. Yeah. And so I'll praise uh, precisely on what you're saying, like those expectations, and those ideas. It's like if you look at a lot of his allegations with women, right, it's actually like. As a martial arts master, I have the powers of healing in my hands. Exactly, exactly. Let's uh, let's watch another Akita demo, and then I think we will. <laughs> we've beaten the Seagal horse pretty well at this point. <laughs> <laughs> this is. Ah, I mean, if anybody's going to injure a horse, it would be Seagal by getting on. <laughs> Can you make it big? Can you make it bigger, Hazel? Thank you. All right, this is Seagal. He's. He's on, 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 on a stage of some kind. People are coming at him. He's all dressed in full regalia. Oh, he's doing one-armed. Nice flips. Good flips. This is... I saw this at WWE Wrestling School. One-handed. So in other arts, this would be called Bunkai. It's usually like uh, Yukimi, I do believe, and Aikido off the top of my head. I could be saying that incorrectly, but I don't care. Um, but it's, it's what's supposed to be happening is once they're caught in a wrist lock in order uh-huh. to wrist lock in jujitsu, what you would normally do is you would tap Ow, that hurts. And I know what they're supposed to do is kind of flip out of whatever the technique is and break ball or dive roll. So that way they don't get injured. Technically is what's supposed to be happening. Now, of course, there's a lot of theatrics going on, like right there, just get out of the way. Like, don't put your arm there. <laughs> but, you know, that's that's kind of the thing. It's flashy and it looks cool. He's using one hand 
and he's grabbing what looks like the wrist, and then somehow he's using his left arm to like flip them. Now, yeah, this just doesn't seem like that's, you know, by the laws of physics possible unless they are also providing force to jump and flip like that. It's nonsense, but a lot of martial arts demos are nonsense anyway. Like, you know, if you look at, you know, usually what happens is a lot of it's theatrics and like 25% of it's technique, but that's because you're trying to sell the sizzle. You know, it's like you're not tasting the steak, you're just looking at it from afar. And so if I was like, let's say I was looking at a delicious steak at a steakhouse and I looked at it from 10 feet across the room. If that steak wasn't sizzling hot and there was no steam coming off of it, I wouldn't know anything. So if there were two steaks sitting side by side, one steaming hot, one's not, and I had to pick which one I wanted, I'd probably pick the one that's got some steam on it, even if it tastes like shit, because I don't know. It's from across the room. Right. And so martial arts demos are really similar. What looks good might not necessarily be good, but it sells it. And so that's basically what they're doing. It's like theatrics. It's just selling it. Rob... What are some final thoughts on on Steven Seagal? How does he compare with all the other fraudsters you kind of cover on your show? I mean, in, in the grand scheme of things, let's say we did it on a scale of one to five, one being fairly harmless and not really going to cause any issues and five being absolutely batshit crazy. I'd say he's probably like a two or three on the grand scale of things. I mean, I've seen some really, really messed up stuff. Like we're talking anything from gang rape to fraud internationally to shooting a student with a live ammunition because they're doing disarms with live ammunition. Jesus. Starting religions is not anything that's new. So, uh, you know, when I see somebody like Seagal trying to hide behind any type of religious, uh, whatever it may be, whether it be Shintoism or whether it be Christianity, it doesn't matter. A lot of frauds do hide behind that. And so it's nothing new. It's absolutely nothing new. If I were, if I were to say the biggest thing that Steven Seagal probably has against him really is the sexual abuse stuff um obviously aikido and no matter what you think about different martial arts aikido probably isn't like the top five of best self-defense arts <laughs> but the real scary stuff really isn't even as martial arts the real scary stuff is the fact that he's using his fame as a martial artist to take advantage of people mm-hmm. you know and it, you know if you ever heard him play guitar live i mean that's that's pretty bad too <laughs> but <laughs> You know, but but Seagal is like one of those people. He's like a drop in the bucket. There is no regulating body to martial arts. Absolutely. Anybody can start a martial arts school with no training whatsoever. You literally tomorrow or today, right now, could start a martial arts school, be the 35th degree black belt of your own art and call it Steve's Martial Arts Emporium and all you can eat Chinese food buffet. You come for the karate, but you stay for the egg rolls. You know what I'm saying? But then you wind up starting this art. No one's going to stop you. There is no regulating body and you can just give out black belts all day long with absolutely no standards whatsoever. So that's incredible. It's scary because that's where a lot of cults are. That's why I have a job. Like my entire job is calling out martial arts cults. So I don't think that it's anything new to what I've seen. Um, I think that what will be scary is the fact that on that list of that scale of one to five, that Steven Seagal barely makes a three um, of some of the stuff that I've seen. Like, and wow. I think that's what's really important for us here is that, you know, some he kind of provides this cover almost for all the other real fraudsters that are out there. And I think those small schools or the, you know, the Dale Browns of the world or whatever the, that guy that was doing all the 
uh, self-defense stuff. Those are the guys that are really going after vulnerable people that are looking to find a way to protect themselves and are maybe kids getting bullied at school. I mean, I took Taekwondo for a couple of years in middle school because I kept getting thrown into trash cans and all. And, and Taekwondo didn't work, but comedy did. And so, I, did. <laughs> so uh, I think there's a lot out there where people are in vulnerable positions and they need help. And then they look at Steven Seagal. And they're like, I could be like Steven Seagal. No, you can't. And you don't want to be. Let's just make that <laughs> no. clear. Please don't be. Yes. Don't be that guy, man. I, I wish that I wish it didn't get worse than him. You know, it would be gr- like I, I, I know that that sounds bad. But in the grand scheme of things, I think it would be great if Steven Seagal was the worst thing that we had seen. Yeah. You know, was the worst out there. But he's not. Jesus. You know, he's a drop in the bucket. I, I posted every day for the last decade. Almost 10 years, every day posting a different fraud, and I've never run out of material. That's once a day. That's what we say on this show. Bad for the world, good for our show. That's what we say. (laughs) (laughs) Terrible human being, but damn it, it's entertaining. Great content for us. Uh, Rob, how can people find you? Pretty simple, man. Just check us out. McDojo Life pretty much anywhere on any social media platform for now until one of them gets mad at me and kicks me off and then I have to start over. Um, but yeah, McDojo Life. And we actually even did a documentary about this uh, last year. We filmed for three months and did a whole documentary about frauds in the martial arts industry. And hopefully you guys will see that come out this coming year. Oh, fantastic. We'll definitely have to catch that. And please, if you want to come back and promote that, we'd, we'd love to have you back on and stuff. Because I think this martial arts, I can't get enough of it. I'm so happy you post about this stuff because it is in fucking sane. This is great, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for responding. Thanks for being on the show, being so cool about it. Thanks. I really appreciate it. So it was so great having Rob here to help us non-martial artists. Although I did, Hazel, I see you put non-martial artists. I was, I did Taekwondo for a year in middle school. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, so <laughs> it's good to have an actual martial artist fact check us. But we're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll give you a brief overview of how Seagal went from a keto instructor to the next Arnold Schwarzenegger and then unpack the 1993 investigative article that literally kicks Seagal's ass. That's in a moment. Oh, we'll be back. (laughs) (laughs) Is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a Realtor can help answer. Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do, because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Okay, we're back, everyone. It's the 80s. Reagan's president. People are watching Arnold Schwarzenegger's The Terminator in theaters. And everyone, especially Hazel and her family, I'm sure, is listening to Michael (laughs) Bolton's third album, also called, wait for it, Michael Bolton, on their yellow Sony Walkmans, of course.
Seagal is living his best life in L.A. as a martial arts expert. In 1987, Seagal meets and marries Kelly, the woman in red, LeBron. Uh, weird science dude yes i'm so happy you brought that up yeah because that is where i went immediately play the weird this is where i know i'm so justin this is why we're bros man this is it this is it weird science is what this is the movie how i do about killing lebron This is gold. She married me with science. Ooh, ooh, ooh. She married me oh, yeah. with science. Dun, 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 dun. She did that. We're in trouble, Gary. This is highly illegal. Look at that. Floppy disk. Scuzzy printer. Dot matrix printer. Dot matrix printer. <laughs> yeah. DOS. Get it. Anthony Michael Hall had a very long career. Such a, he still has a career. Yeah. He should be proud. Here so, comes Kelly. What would you like to do first? Dude, look at what Steven Seagal lied his way into. Yeah, exactly. Like she was a hot person. Yeah, she was a model. She was in pantine commercials. Don't hate me because I'm beautiful. Very successful. I mean, Seagal was marrying up clearly. Kelly LeBrock, like, could you imagine lying your way? That'd be like me lying and then I marry like Halle Berry yeah. in like ninety two. <laughs> And I've just been lying about martial arts. <laughs> it's like this guy was married to the Halle Berry. Like it's, it's for her, it's probably the worst thing that ever happened in her but, life. But though, right? Kelly LeBrock. I mean, I don't know how she ended up with him. God bless her. I feel bad for her, frankly. But one of Seagal's many Arsenio Hall appearances. And by the way, who's the booker for Arsenio Hall? Constantly getting Seagal on the show. <laughs> uh, all of these interviews are so painful. But there's a reason Seagal is known as the worst SNL host of all time. Uh, Arsenio asked LeBrock how the two of them actually met. <laughs> no, but let's get into that. How did you all meet? Yeah, we met in Japan. Um, I was there working, and my press agent asked him to keep an eye on me, and he did. And mm. we've been together ever since. He and did then, acupuncture on me. He did acupuncture? Mm. Is that what he called it? <laughs> <laughs> he used his big needle. <laughs> yes, uh... <laughs> Are you a doctor of some type? Um, I studied acupuncture. He told you he was a doctor? I studied acupuncture uh, in herbology and bone manipulation in Japan for many years. But you're not really a doctor. Well, something like that, yeah. But he told you he was a doctor. Well, I trusted him. His big needle? That was good enough for yeah, me. You know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Don't you think it's also by his hands? Uh, no, I usually just go to the phone book and say, uh, <laughs> it sounds like he got a degree. Uh, Kelly. Ooh, that's really dark. <laughs> Arsenio. <laughs> I, I love it even Arsenio. Like, you just believe this guy was a doctor? Like, every host is, like, leaving these breadcrumbs. Uh, you know what's really dark about that clip, though, is every sexual assault allegation against Steven Seagal actually has that same narrative of him attempting to do some type of Eastern healing on an actress in his dressing room. And then it's also the 
the industry serving women to him. Yeah. Like, uh, oh, if you want to get on this role, you need to go interview with Steven Seagal before the film and stuff like that. So that 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 whole segment uh, really does not age well. It tells you exactly the kind of pattern that that is going to be a, uh, the emerge in the allegations uh, uh, against Steven Seagal years later. And look, we would very much want to pay more attention uh, to those things. Steven Seagal actually lies so much that concentrating on the volume of sexual assault allegations would mean we'd have to actually do a, another episode. We are actually strained so much for content just on his biography and those claims uh, that it becomes an issue of like of, of time, honestly. Yeah, I mean, there's just too much there. And it's, I think we've, we've covered sexual assault several times and i think us just letting everyone know that this is the kind of guy he is i don't think it's going to be a surprise that this is part of his story but we press on yeah not not diminishing it it's just not the core of his fraudulence it's actually it's the it's the it's the outgrowth of all the access that he has and the power that he's given that he's doing these things yeah. Okay, so this is another little piece that kind of talks about more of Seagal's character. And from the 1993 Spy Magazine article, we got a little bit more insight into actually how Seagal and LeBrock met. According to Joe Himes, uh, a vice president of publicity at Warner Brothers since 1970, Seagal saw LeBrock in the 1984 Gene Wilder vehicle, Woman in Red. Himes remembers Seagal saying, quote, she's my daughter. <sighs> Jesus. Himes was friends with LeBrock's former agent, Jerry Pam. He arranged a dinner where Seagal could meet Pam. Uh, during dinner, Himes recalls, Seagal asked Pam what was the best way to get publicity. Pam told him the best way was to be seen in the company of somebody famous. Later, Seagal asked if Pam could help him meet Kelly LeBrock. Pam told Seagal that Kelly was currently in Japan. Stalking much? Okay, so then uh, the bigamist then flew to Japan to woo the woman who would become his third wife within two weeks. And I just, I just, I just uh, well, and just, a, just a note here: this is the guy that could not go to Japan to see his adult son. Yeah. As soon as he finds out Kelly LeBrock's there, he gets on a plane immediately and is able to go there. Within two weeks of meeting LeBrock, they were lovers, and within the year, she was expecting his child. By this time, Adrian LaRussa had decided to file for an annulment. By the way, doing all this while still married to the second wife. <laughs> Adrian LaRussa had decided to file for an annulment. Seagal did not dispute her motion, and she didn't seek any financial damages or support from him, probably because he didn't have any fucking money. She said, quote, Not only did I not ask for anything, LaRussa told Spy, but I gave him money for months afterward just to get him out of my life. She added, I can't say very much because I am afraid of Stephen and his friends. <sighs> Stephen Seagal, a keto black belt, and broke. <laughs> Two-time bigamist. Two-time bigamist. Deadbeat dad. This is like uh, Chaz Palminteri in the Bronx Tale, uh, where he's like, you know, <laughs> telling the little guys like, you know, don't fight that guy over a couple bucks. Just pay him to get him out of your life. You'll never have to see him again. This is what she did. Seagal went from rubbing elbows, or rather breaking wrists and poking needles, with uh, famous people to his own stardom in his late 30s. He explained his unlikely trajectory to Larry King in this next book. Larry King, who was at the time in his late 300s during this <laughs> interview from, <laughs> from 1993. Harrison Ford was a carpenter, and he got his shot 
You were a health fitness expert, right? No, no, no. I was uh, uh, teaching the martial arts. Teaching to yeah, thousands of people from all over the world. I taught in Japan. But someone famous no. liked you, right? How did you get in the movies? Well, when I came back to America, which I'm not sure I'm kind of slightly autistic when it comes to numbers. I think it was probably around uh, 485, something like that. Um, I had been writing, and I had given some of the things that I'd written to some people in Hollywood, and they kept saying, you know, we want you sort of in front of the camera rather than behind it. And there were sort of a lot of influential people in Hollywood who wanted to try that. And Terry Summerhead asked me to do a screen test. Uh, and I did it, and they liked it. And he gave me four scripts. He said, pick one of these and we'll make it. And that was? Uh, that was above the law. Now, didn't Michael Ovis have a start in your career, too? Um, he's somebody that uh, I, w I was teaching the martial arts to and uh, was a friend of mine. Did he agent you? Yes, he Michael did. Michael Ovis, one bad. of the most powerful people in Hollywood, by the way. And apparently, he had given an Aikido demonstration to the top brass at Warner Brothers, facilitated by the head of CAA at the time, and renowned talent manager, Michael Ovitz. As we said, huge power broker in Hollywood. Must have been some demonstration. If you remember, uh, it's all a show. Even the founder of Aikido, a lot of it was a lot of, you know, jazz hands making flips. <laughs> totally, yeah. He totally uh, blew a little by air, and the guy did 47 backflips <laughs> through a table. And they were like, this is going to be a hit. In fact, studio executives at the time said this of Seagal. As soon as I saw Steven, I knew that given the right vehicle, he could become a major star, said Tony Ludwig, president of Imagine Films. The closest person I've ever seen that carries himself with the same kind of stature is Mikhail Baryshnikov. Steven is smooth, powerful, and has this don't mess with me presence. It's almost as if he's a manufactured human being. This little note, yes, he is a manufactured human being. <laughs> yeah. It's, <laughs> it's almost as if you don't really know this man at all. <laughs> it's almost like he came out of nowhere and then he just made everything up. I would like everyone to compare that description of his physicality. You know, he's smooth like Mikhail Baryshnikov, a real Fred Astaire. And then just watch clips of Steven Seagal running in action films oh, and contrast yeah. those. Exactly. His form isn't great. This article actually goes on to say, of course, quote, manufactured cuts both ways. With all these heavy hitters behind him, we're entitled to wonder, is Seagal a bona fide discovery or will he come off as just another homogenized Hollywood hunk? <laughs> There's another quote here. Steven has the most amazing presence you've ever seen, says Ludwig, who met Seagal when Ludwig was a creative artist agent. He said, quote, when he walks into a room, you can see every head, male and female, turn around as if they're all wondering who this guy is. It's sheer magnetism. No, they're wondering who this guy is. <laughs> who the fuck is this guy? What the fuck is he doing here? What is this ponytailed, slightly chubby guy rolling in here glaring at everybody? He is a big guy. You know, what's cool about Steven Seagal, though, I will say, though, his physicality, because everyone in Hollywood is tiny, he is a big guy in general. So he's a huge guy when he enters in a room full of, like, Hollywood executives, you know, because even the on-screen talent is tiny, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and our skepticism was shared by a lot at the time. Uh, one guy in particular, Alan Richman, who had won 16 James Beard Foundation Awards for journalism and received a bronze star as an army captain in Vietnam, called out Seagal for cosplaying as a CIA agent. Now, unfortunately, we couldn't get a hold of, of his article because it's been archived in some way, but a lot of people referenced 
the Richmond article. And it was entitled, Black Belt, White Lies. So that should give you a sense of what it was about. When asked to respond to the article on the home field advantage show, <laughs> Arsenio Hall, <laughs> this is what he had to say. Let's start with you article. What did you think of that? Well, I hated it. You know, I hated it intensely. What mostly did you hate about it? Well, I think that, um, you know, you get into situations where um, people who uh, are trying to, like, make a shot somehow, take a shot to, like, get somewhere, you know, at our expense, do that all the time. They've done it to you. They've done it to every star I know. And all I can say is, you know... Uh, Ooh, Arsenio doesn't like this. He's this taking a sip of his coffee. Like Whoop, let's fat just... Little, uh, you know, mail him... That's going to get bleeped. And, 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 you know, that's, that's, yeah. You know, that's his... <clears throat> that's his shot at me. That's how he can beat me up, you know? And, you know, he misquoted all my friends, and, and he was out to crucify me, and, and he did. But uh, all I can say, you know, to that magazine is that if they keep doing that to stars, eventually they'll have male models on their cover because all of us are getting tired of it, you know? Yeah, um... They call the article Black Belt White Lies. Yeah, the old ad hominem trick. This yeah. is what we call the fallacy of arguing. Rather than addressing the contents of the article and making any claims or counterclaims, uh, he just says the guy is 5'2 and he is fat and he should get beat up. Like that's, it's, it's very much like, it's very much the Donald Trump, what a nasty woman response. Yeah. And during the, the debate with Hillary Clinton. It just doesn't even address the point. And he says, try to take a shot. Or, no, he doesn't want to beat you up. You're a fraud. And he has 16 James Beard Awards. And he was in the army. He has a bronze star. He doesn't need to like elevate his career by taking you down, Seagal. He, you obviously rubbed him the wrong way. And that's why he's taking you down. Let's keep going. Why? Because, I mean, you know, I don't understand why this person would say something like that you know he misrepresented himself to all of us you know when we had a talk earlier you've, mm -hmm. you've had the same thing happen absolutely i'm your fan man i love build you, rapport with arsenio peace and you know i, I want to know what they're I all against us see i don't mind journalists saying things about me because they will uh, i don't mind that either. i just would like them to tell the truth exactly you know? arms and, folded um, by seagal tell me about the things that he said what white lies did he tell well, first of all, you know, all of the people that he quoted from Jerry Orbach to, to, to you know, everybody else in the article, uh, they're friends of mine who have a lot of really nice things to say about me, who like me a lot. And they were all really livid that they were misquoted. And, uh, you know, it's very, very simple. To, to put it, you know, the way I would, or I would like to now, we're all in a situation now where we have to get up there and climb that ladder to do the best we can to get the control that we want to do good films. And everybody says it comes with the territory, you know? People, people are gonna take shots at me and they're gonna take shots at you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes we take them back and sometimes we don't. Um, I'm just trying to let it roll off my back now and do the best I can to mind my own business and make good movies, you know? That was the longest non-answer to a question. Yeah. If this upset you that much, Throw some specifics out there. Not a difficult thing to do. No, because, and also I like the appeal to authority, right? It's like, Jerry Orbach is my friend. Therefore, anything I say is true. Although Jerry Orbach was misquote, like misquote. He just, so he name drops the people to give himself like legitimacy. 
but he never engages with anything specifically they said. He's also smart enough not to repeat any of the claims that the author made so it doesn't put it in the audience's head at all. So he's like a skilled liar in that way. He's vague enough to never even, you know, repeat the issues that are raised by in the article. So not only did he call Alan Richmond all kinds of names, he tried to hire, and this is true, a real security consultant to ha- set up Richmond with another man and, quote, get pictures of him going down on the man in order to destroy his career. When the consultant, who was shocked, refused, Seagal reportedly asked about getting someone whacked. (laughs) The horrified consultant first clarified that he did indeed mean kill the man and then appropriately told Seagal that he was crazy and left. Well, I like this. This is like Seagal really looks really good here because, the you know, he's like, my response to this will be homophobic extortion. Yeah. And then when I find out that that is not a rule, then I'll actually float an organized homicide out there. <laughs> I also like that a CIA agent has to ask uh, some random guy about how getting someone killed. I yeah. thought you were Mr. Special Forces. You Did you go to it? the yellow pages? Clandestine? Yeah, exactly. I thought you were the security <laughs> consultant. <laughs> yeah. If only I knew somebody that was hard to kill. <laughs> he only knows how to get a Pomeranian from the pet store down the street. <laughs> Now, we know this because of a truly incredible expose published two years after Alan Richmond's GQ article called Man of Dishonor. It was a 12-page spread in the August 1993 edition of Spy Magazine. It was written by John Connolly, who served as an NYPD detective, don't hold that against him, before becoming an investigative journalist. He has since written about many famous criminals like Michael Jackson, Jeffrey Epstein, and Donald Trump. Michael Jackson, Jeffrey Epstein, and Donald Trump. That's a photo that looked really cool in 1992 (laughs) that has now not aged very well. Everyone's got flushed red cheeks. Uh, (laughs) Seagal tried to shut down the article before it could be published by filing a slander suit against Connolly. And it makes sense. I mean, Connolly's article breaks down every part of Seagal's story like he was just deconstructing a tent. It was immaculate. We've already included some of the reporting in this episode, but one small and incredible tidbit that we hadn't yet covered has to do with the very foundation of his identity. And this is straight from the article. He seems to distance himself from his Jewish side. Mom was Irish and the family worshipped indifferently as Catholics or Episcopalians. But dad was Jewish and the family pronounced its name the normal way, Siegel. When he and Gary Goldman were in business together, Seagal said he didn't want to call the production company Seagal Goldman Productions because that would sound too much like two Jews from the garment business. Shortly after that, the actor returned from an art exhibit where he had seen a painting by Seagal. (laughs) You know where this is going. (laughs) The work moved him to decree that thereafter he would call himself Seagal. Yeah, and of that, I'm just honestly surprised that he went to an art exhibit. I love this cultured side of Steven Seagal. But I also like how he's like anti-Semitic against himself. What? He's like, Seagal, that sounds too Jewish. That's like Bagel McBagel Steven and Incorporated. We're we're, (laughs) going to do something different. And it's like, dude, you're Jewish. (laughs) I'm sure everyone assumed he was Italian, by the way. Right. I'm just he just <laughs> yeah. plays that card all the time. And it goes on to say that he actually married his first wife and moved to Japan to avoid the draft. OK, but here's the thing that's funny. His number was so far down the line that he would never have even gotten drafted in the first place. And if that wasn't enough to conclude, he was never a Navy SEAL. 
The article also quotes Gary Goldman, a former friend of Seagal's, describing a trip he took with him. And this is from the article. In an interview with Spy, Goldman says he had known that Seagal tends to tell grandiose tales about himself. Late in 1988, a former soldier of fortune and treasure hunter named Randy Widner invited Seagal. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Wait a minute. He's like scum of the earth, soldier of fortune. Like you're hanging out with mercenaries. Oh, my God. <laughs> Is this for it seems like a character from Overboard or like. <laughs> Done a little work in Rhodesia, if you know what I mean. He invited Seagal, <laughs> Goldman, and another man to hunt for treasure. Come on, off the coast of Barbados. I cannot make this up, people. At the time, Seagal had been telling Goldman that he'd been a U.S. Navy SEAL. Oh, God, here we go. Evidently, this was one frogman who didn't take well to water. As Goldman recalls, quote, Randy was driving a Zodiac raft in circles while Stephen and I carried the gear out to him. The surf was unbelievable, really tough. He started screaming and panicking and was sure he was going to die and all that crap. Goldman says Seagal <laughs> had to be helped onto the vessel. Widener had to pull Seagal by his hair. <laughs> I pushed his ass onto the boat with my shoulder. Later that evening, Goldman says he realized that Seagal could not read a compass or a map. Seagal <laughs> describes himself. <laughs> this is where, again, Seagal describes himself as quote, autistic with numbers. I just don't... I just, I get the opposite? <laughs> I don't think that word's what you think it means. <laughs> with that... <laughs> with that, Goldman says he totally dismissed the notion that Seagal had ever been involved in any covert actions. In his letter to the Times reporter... Goldman wrote that Seagal would surely die of starvation if he was given a compass and a map and led to a restaurant five miles away. I can't. <laughs> I like, I'm dead, the man. Lying about being a Navy SEAL. It's like Navy SEALs have such elite level skill. It's just such a huge lie. And then they even go out there near the water when you know you're not a Navy SEAL thinking you can fake that. What? That's so insane. Did you not think that people would see you swimming or see you interacting with water at any point in your life? I mean, this is, goes back to what every fraudster does. They tell the, the biggest lie possible and everyone's like, yeah, who would lie about something that ridiculous? Obviously, we'll know that you're not a Navy SEAL if you're afraid of like the tide being rough. I also think now, because Stolen Valor got so bad, I think you can actually find the list of everybody that actually qualified as a Navy SEAL now. Ah. Now it's like easily researchable. And it's such a small group of people that the class sizes aren't that big because it's an elite group. You know? By the way, good. Yeah, we shouldn't be just letting anyone become a Navy <laughs> SEAL. Connolly also explained where the CIA stories came from in his writing. Seagal undoubtedly knew some agents. Perhaps it was from them that he appropriated the heroic tales he tells about himself. According to Mark Makita, the actor specializes in taking bits of other people's experiences and claiming them as his own. Hmm, a true artist. On one occasion, one of Seagal's <laughs> students, a former Green Beret, was talking about his time in Laos. Later, Seagal told the same story to another group. Only now he had become the protagonist. <laughs> Unfortunately, the Green Beret was in the group. Makita remembers the soldier saying, Hey, idiot, that's my story. Oh, you got to be shitting me with this guy. <laughs> you come on now. <laughs> what is this? This is some high This is like not even high school. This is like elementary school stuff. <laughs> He's like such a sociopath. He doesn't even realize the guy's standing there. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was your story. Yeah. Well, that was a good story. 
But I was that doing wow, so this is so good. One of Connolly's main sources for the article was a guy named Robert Strickland, a veteran and actual retired CIA agent. He had been a friend of Seagal's and even agreed to sell his life rights to Seagal. Then he apparently saw Seagal on, on Arsenio Hall recounting one of his stories in the first person. Well, he didn't like that. And he reached out to Seagal's agent and Hollywood power player, Michael Ovitz. Ovitz for the win again? Really? To make him aware of his client's bullshit. Yeah, and what made him really mad is when Seagal told the story, the audience approved by going, I hope there's people out there, Justin, that are like, what is what is what is Justin doing? Why is he making that sound? I don't understand. <laughs> I I genuinely at fraudsters LPN at gmail.com, please ask us, we'll tell you. Or just Google Arsenio Hall. Which brings us to, <laughs> which brings us to our final point today. Could it be a fine is there a final point on Seagal? Could this be the final point? Well, Connolly's article answers the great mystery that is, you know, how did Seagal, whose on-screen depiction is still a photograph, as one film critic put it, becoming a movie star. Well, he was plucked from relative obscurity by CAA mega agent Michael Ovitz, who did indeed arrange a demo for Warner execs. And the execs were impressed. Side note, in Michael Ovitz's own biography, he does brag or pump up how he discovered Seagal, that he was his instructor, and then he was like, I'm going to make Seagal my martial arts instructor into an action movie star. And the execs here were impressed by Seagal's demo. As we saw, that's a no-brainer. It's very impressive when they do the kind of flips and stuff. Apparently, though, they didn't realize it was totally fake. Mark Makita, who participated in the demonstration, told Connolly, things were orchestrated. I still can't believe those guys at Warner's didn't know it was for Hearst demonstration. <laughs> Makita told Spy, it shouldn't have fooled anybody. So Gaul could not toss me or anyone else in the air unless we were in on it. I mean, honestly, how dumb do you be? These people were doing like multiple flips in the air and then falling on their back. In a video game, it take longer to do. It's just... It, it's incredulous. While they may have bought into his martial arts bravado, the studio did not take to his on-screen presence at all. According to Joe Himes, the vice president of publicity at Warner Brothers, it was a complete disaster. Seagal's voice was squeaky, and he didn't come across well on screen. Oh, my God. Do you remember what uh, Seagal said about his screen test? They liked it, and he gave me four scripts. He said, pick one of these and we'll make it. This should have been the end of his acting career. The end. Okay, I can't tell you how many auditions I've been on where I just had a small flip up and then that was it. I mean, my acting career is pretty much over, but I didn't have Michael Ovitz in my corner. And in this case, Ovitz actually took the incredibly unusual step of sacrificing his own financial gain. So in that case, Ovitz made a deal with the studio to basically give them a sweetheart deal for another director so that they would be a little bit nicer about getting Seagal some screen time. This, Connolly concludes, probably has something to do with Seagal's ties to the mob. Why else would you take a financial hit to yourself for the gain of someone else? Your martial arts instructor? Come on. In the article, he details the shady dealings of Seagal's production company and business partner, Julius Nasso, and notes the mob connections present on Seagal's sets 
like the like one of the technical advisors on Under Siege was Robert Booth Nichols, who had been identified in federal wiretaps as associating with the Gambino crime family. You know, when you end up on a fucking wiretap, it's not like, you know, they saw you at the same supermarket together. You're on a wiretap, buddy. But we aren't going to detail all the mob illusions Connolly provides. Uh, we encourage you to read the whole article uh, that we'll link in the episode description. So there you have it. Seagal most likely strong-armed his way into the movies, or at least the mob helped him strong-arm his way into the movies. And while we don't know how Michael Lovitz might have gotten wrapped up in such unsavoriness, uh, we do know that he didn't extricate himself at all. In fact, again, in his book, he brags about it. In 2002, decades after Seagal's rise, Michael Ovitz again was in serious hot water. Journalist Anita Bush was preparing to publish a series of unflattering pieces on Ovitz and Seagal when she found a dead fish, a rose, and a note saying stop on her car windshield. Who uses dead fish? Somebody's seen The Godfather way too many times. It's like, I couldn't fit a horse head on here, so I'll use a fish. Well, it swims, swims with the fishes. Luca Brasi swims with the fishes, but that's like a post-death <laughs> thing. But uh, she also alleges that two men in a dark Mercedes nearly ran her down outside her home in August 2002. She says, quote, I remember thinking I was going to die, she said through tears. I thought this is how it ends. Jesus, it's, it's over an action movie. Ovitz has since confessed to hiring Anthony Pelicano, a private eye, to leave the threat, and they settled the case in 2018 after 14 years of litigation. So, Ovitz confesses to actually being a part of some intimidation tactics against this reporter. That's absurd. This, this town is insane. So apparently, before settling, Ovitz was going to put the finger at Seagal for orchestrating the threat against the reporter. But again... None of that's in the court documents. We don't know that 100% certain. This town, though, we do know for certain, is fucking bonkers. So after three plus hours of recording, folks, we end today's episode actually validating that Seagal did probably have friends who did, quote, special operations, but it was almost certainly mobsters, not Navy SEALs or CIA agents. And the ones that he did know, he just stole their stories, the old stolen valor. Next week, we're going to look at a totally different side of Seagal. I know. I know. How many sides of Seagal could there possibly be? <laughs> There's more lies. <laughs> we didn't even, we did three hours and we only cracked the first set of lies. <laughs> I don't even know what the finished runtime of this episode is going to be. Hazel's going to have her hands full trying to cut all this down. And just before you go, don't, don't click away yet. Don't click away yet, people. Don't click away. Don't, don't go to the next podcast. Don't, don't do it. Don't do it. We're going to leave you <laughs> with a little ditty from one of the greatest blues musicians of all time, Steven Seagal, as a tease for next week. I want to welcome to your ears and your headphones the one and the only Steven Seagal does Hoochie Coochie Man. <laughs> Some woman told my mama before I was born. She said, You're gonna have a boy child coming. He's gonna be a son of a gun. He's gonna make pretty women jump and shout. And the world gonna know what this all about.
can't bone I got a mojo too I got the John the cockroach I'm gonna mess with you I'm gonna leave pretty women Take me by my hand And the world gonna know Can't wait for next week. Make sure you hit us up on our Discord, link in bio on our Instagram and our Twitter and everything like that. Fraudsters, as always, is a production of Zero Cool Media and Last Podcast Network. Hazel Bryan did an amazing job producing this episode. Ian Brannon is our editor. Our associate producer is Anna Laranaga. Emily Fusco is our researcher. Our legal intern is Greg Fingerhut. Our theme music is by Simon Tafik. And some of the music in this episode was composed by Chris Olson. And Steven Seagal. good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a Realtor can help answer. Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do, because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.